0: Podcast, episode six: Human Safari, Fantastic Planet. Ugh. Hey everyone. Uh, I'm sorry this episode's got almost a week late. Uh, I don't know what happened. I just had some sort of uh, really bad stomach bug, so I've just not really been feeling. You know, getting down to just watching a movie or just recording. So, yeah. Again, sorry for it. I'm gonna try. And, <laughs> I'm gonna try and get thin r- the episode next week uh, out on time. Otherwise, I'll just put an announcement out saying it's gonna just shift everything down a week. But yeah, so today we're gonna be talking about a, a fun little, fun little sci-fi movie from 1973. France it's called fantastic planet and uh, kind of the same thing with the last episode with uh, eating Raoul which I hope everyone uh, I hope everyone enjoyed whether you watched it first or not but again we're gonna be discussing spoilers so we're I would highly suggest that if you have HBO max, uh, just go on, look up Fantastic Planet, and watch it. It's only like 71 minutes, so, you know, it's not like too much time. So we're just going to go through this general plot here first, is that it's a very distant future setting, and... Um, we have these giant humanoid, uh, blue-skinned aliens called the Trogs, T-R-A-A-G-S or D-R-A-A-G-S in the subtitles on the actual movie, and they brought human beings who are called Oms, O-M-S, which is a, you know, pun on the French word for man, because this was originally a French uh, story, and. It's implied that they invaded Earth, and in the process they brought some humans to their own home planet of Yigam, where they have this very, like, technologically advanced society, and it's also implied they have, um... some kind of, like, psychic power. So, I mean, it's like... It's like a lot of the counterculture sci-fi from the 70s. There's a lot of, like, spiritual aspects to it. Um... So there's that. The trogs consider the ohms to be a sort of invasive species, and while they keep some as pets, there's a whole bunch of others that just, <coughs> sorry, live out in the wilderness, and they're just sort of subjected to, you know, periodic purges to keep the population down. Um, as they say in the movie, the the trogs have much longer lifespans, but they reproduce a lot slow, a lot slower. <laughs> And this kind of sets up, like, the two different main interpretations of the movie, which we'll get into later. But, yeah, basically the trogs are just, like, really, really big. Like, big enough that, you know, they can hold a full-grown human in their hand. And so we open with, you know, an own mother, a human lady, running around with her her infant in her arms. And she just sort of gets, well, basically teased to death. Like, you know, there's these three children that are just sort of like playing around and they don't really understand just how fragile a human being is uh, just by virtue of being so much smaller than them. So after that happens, three of them run off. Uh, The orphaned infant is found by Master Sin, who's one of the Trog leaders, and his daughter Tiwa. And they take the little boy, who is actually like the narrator for the whole movie, and names him Ter, and keeps the boy as a little pet. I mean, she's very careful not to hurt him, but her parents have kind of, you know, you know, as you tell any kid when they get a pet, you need to look after them. So they give her a little collar that she can put on him and just sort of pull him back if he tries to run away. So she kind of, like, keeps him as a sort of, like, you know, service... I wouldn't say service animal, but as a pet. And this is one of those things where it's, like, old sci-fi. She has this sort of, like, headset, basically, that she, you know, takes all of her school lessons through. and just sort of, like, mad, you know, magically transmits it into the brain, and it just stays there. But the collar has a little defect in it that allows him to receive the same knowledge, too. So around the time that Tiwa grows into her, you know, her teen years and first performs meditation, she loses some interest in Terror, and Te'er, for his part, has become, you know, a young man, and he's acquired much of the Trog's knowledge. So he steals the headset and runs off into the wilderness. And he meets up with... He meets up with this sort of, like, tribe of runaways. And they're... It's a weird thing, because they're, like, stuck in this sort of abandoned amusement park or something like that. There's just all this weird shit everywhere and landscapes that don't look, even by, you know, the movie standard, natural. So it's either, like, an old amusement park or an old zoo that just got abandoned. And... What happens is the tear shows them how to use the headset to like, you know, make themselves more intelligent, makes them uh, more acquainted with the Trog's knowledge. And from this point on the Trogs are going to subject the Elms to a another one of their like, you know, cullings or one of their one of their purges. So they read the announcement because they can read their language now. And they decide to band together and make a sort of resistance group. And they actually managed to kill a few of the Trogs. So they find this abandoned rocket depot. And they just live there for a few years. And they're able to replicate some of the Trogs' technology. And basically, what happens is that they go from Igam, thats the planet that they're on—and they go to the moon, which is the title, Fantastic Planet. And they use the rockets to get there, and they discover these large statues that the trogs are using to travel during their like you know psychic meditations. And I don't know—it's just this weird thing that you really—it's kind of hard to explain, just because it's such a it's such an old animated movie that it looks kinda of surreal watching it. But anyway, some of the statues are destroyed and the Trogs basically agree to negotiate for peace. So the Elms agree to leave the fantastic into the Trogs for their meditations, and the and the Trogs put up a little artificial satellite for the Elms to live as a new home. And the movie kind of just ends with uh, you know, an implied era of peaceful coexistence. You know, they're both better off, but they're not at each other's throats anymore. So that's that's overall the whole story of the movie. So before we get on to the actual, like, themes of the movie, the way people have interpreted it, I do just want to give a couple shout-outs to some of the style of the movie. So first is the uh, art style and animation Obviously, you know, don't expect too much. It's older, it's low budget, but I actually kinda like it. It's it's got a weird sort of you know, surrealist feel to it. It's as a friend a friend of mine I showed it to showed it to him and he's basically said it's like a weird mix of like the illuminations uh from Monty Python the Holy Grail. <laughs> mixed with like Salvador Dali. So it's got that weird sort of like nothing looks completely natural. So it creates a sort of like dreamlike atmosphere, which is always kind of a fun thing for movies for me. The other thing is the music. The music in this is also really, really good. Um, composed by Alan Goraguer. I'm assuming that's how you pronounce that name. Um, but yeah, the main theme is like very reminiscent of. I don't know if any of you have heard Pink Floyd's uh, "Adam Heart Mother Suite." It's got the same like halftime tempo, mellotron, harpsichord, the wah wah effects on the guitar. The music overall is like very. It's very seventies, <laughs> and if you're fans of like French or Italian seventies soundtracks, uh, you'll you'll enjoy this. It's a little. Re- The music's a little repetitive, but it has a sort of like floaty mood to it. And it blends sort of like psychedelic rock, jazz, funk. I mean, I'm not surprised it's been sampled by a few hip hop artists, to be honest. Apparently, it was like really in demand uh, to get a vinyl copy in uh, France in the mid 70s. So, uh, yeah, the music is, the soundtrack is definitely worth checking out, out as well, just for its own sake. Now this is where we get into the actual uh, themes of the movie because this is the film's narrative has been considered to be allegorical for both for both animal rights and human rights, which is kind of funny in its own sake in a in a dark way. Obviously, it's a very heady uh, topic, very heady subject matter. But uh, see, so yeah, like I mentioned, some of the OMS are basically kept as like pets by the drugs um and obviously there's like wild ones that they routinely cull um one of the write-ups done for Turner Classic Movies said it's not, you know, a stretch to see the movie reflecting uh reflecting some of the stuff that was going on in the world at the time. I mean, you know, apartheid was still a thing in South Africa. This was like a decade after you know the, actually no. This was like, this was only like half a decade after the civil rights movement in the U.S. This was like a decade after you know the French war in Algeria. And you know, obviously that other thing, that other thing that I'm not going to mention on here because I don't want to like make this whole thing too dark right now. When the drugs decided to just cull all of the wild ohms. But the thing is that the weird part, like I said, is that you can also see it as allegorical for animal rights. Um just because of the way it's putting because it's more or less just taking humans and putting them in the role of either a pest or a pet based on the individual member. Honestly, I think it I think it's a little better towards the uh towards the latter, towards the animal rights aspect, but I don't know. I mean, it is definitely it, the whole dynamic between the two species is definitely broad enough that it's it's multi-purpose. Um, you know, in both cases, it's definitely the whole how would you like it role reversal, which isn't anything new. Um you know, H. G. Wells famously did that with the War of the Worlds. That was supposed to be partially allegorical for, you know, Europeans uh, coming in suppressing technologically uh, inferior native populations, and then usually, you know, getting taken out by the uh, native diseases. How exactly you get a disease inside a spaceship that is supposed to be vacuum sealed, I'm not going to get into that, but, you know. This is definitely something that's been done before, but it's still here, done very, very well. Um, yeah, I would definitely go watch this. And in case you're wondering, just from watching the, just from watching a trailer or just from seeing a poster, yes, it is perfectly fine if you get really fucking baked while you watch it. But you know, it it's good enough that you can enjoy it without that. I'm certainly not going to stop you. But yeah, so that's Fantastic Planet. Um, I'm sorry this one is going to be a little shorter than average but I- I'm still not fucking feeling very well to be honest. Uh, yeah, I'm gonna I'm gonna just wrap it up here and tentatively promise that I'll have uh the next week's the next episode out uh in a week on schedule. I got a few movies I want to watch I need to go see for the dispatches so I'm gonna work out the time for that um, but yeah and if anyone's wondering next week if you haven't seen the schedule that I have uh, in a pinned tweet on my feed we're going to be hopping back in time for Terrence Malick's The Thin Red Line which is based on the Battle of Guadalcanal in World War II it's got a big cast it's admittedly a longer movie but You know, it's definitely, I'm definitely going to try and make a case to get you to watch it. So until then, um, have a good day, stay safe, and I hope you find a bunch of movies to watch that you enjoy. Bye.